This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is Manhunt, Finding Kevin Paul. Two murders, two grieving families and one man's hunt to find a fugitive. This ain't an ego trip. This is the best possible use of my skills, my experience and my contacts. It's the best possible thing I could do. Episode 3. Peter. What will the ending be? None of us know. But this time next year, there will be an ending, whatsoever that may be. Will it be that Kevin Powell is still on the run and I haven't found him? Possibly. Will it be that we have discovered a corpse, for example? Because there is some school of thought that says he may be dead. Dead or alive, I want to find him. And really, the most important driving factor as to why I want to find him, it's for Mary Kelly, Liam's mum, And it's for Lucy's parents, who have raised Lucy's three children ever since her savage murder. If we can get some kind of resolution, that of course would be wonderful. Peter Blexley is the former Met Police detective who became the chief on Channel 4's Hunted. Ladies and gentlemen, gather round the big screen please. Fugitives are on the run. Let's find out who these people are. They're ex-military. Let's get a registration on that vehicle, please. Is that a phone? We can track those phones. Right, get after them. How far will they go for £100,000? Hunted returns... Now he's set his heart, his contacts and his reputation on finding Kevin Paul. The first thing I try to do is gain publicity to get column inches and airtime across whatever media I can to try and make this case as high profile as possible and just try to raise public awareness of what it is I'm doing. Ladies and gentlemen, please forgive me if I could just have a moment of your time, please. My name's Peter Blexey, I'm a writer and a broadcaster and what I'm trying to do is find a man called Kevin Parl. These are computer-generated images done by John Moore's University of what they think he would have looked like in 2016 because Kevin Parle has been on the run for over 14 years. Now, a retired police officer and reality TV star says that he is determined to track down a fugitive from Merseyside who's been on the run for more than 14 years. Detectives believe that Kevin Parle was involved in two murders, but he skipped bail and disappeared. And if anybody knows anything about either murder, about Liam or Lucy's murder, or indeed if they know anything about Kevin Powell, whether it was back in the day or it's actually where he is now, could they please call me on 07908 617 694. I'd be extremely grateful. Former Scotland Yard detective Peter Blexley has launched his own manhunt to try to find him. And as many of you will know him as the chief from Hunting, he's pretty good at finding fugitives. Hey, Peter, thanks for joining us. Great to have Peter Blexley back with us. Former detective turned TV star. You will know him from Channel 4's hit show Hunted. But he's turning his attention now to catching one of the UK's most wanted criminals. So, 
This is centred on a man called Kevin Park. A lot of brave people are coming forward and talking to me, but I can't have too much information. Yeah. You know, numbers on there. Ask me phone. Do you think he's in the country or do you think he's somewhere else? I can't give him a heads up, can I? But I have had five reported sightings. I'm looking for Kevin Powell. Yeah, okay. I read the thing on Facebook. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Did you know about him before you talked no. with him? Right, you see, that's what I'm trying to change. Yeah. I want him to become a household name. Right. I want him to become the most infamous, well-known fugitive on the planet because yeah. that is going to make life extremely difficult for him. Yeah. I want him to know, and I'm sure he does know, because I'm sure either he himself or those close to him are monitoring what I'm doing in the media. And I send out that message. I'm coming for you, pal. So I'm Jenny. I met Peter when he was the chief on uh, Hunted and I was asked to join the show as part of the team in HQ and work with him throughout series four, which would be the one where we caught all of the fugitives. So Peter is a brilliant person to work with in lots of ways, right? So a great leader, he's someone who unites the team, who, who absolutely fights your corner for you. And there's an instinct as well as a thoroughness to what he does. So he will make sure that everybody's following things up. If you want something doing, don't get me wrong, you do it there and then. Uh, he's very clear on what he wants you to do. But also what I found really uh, as a big learning point for me was the way that he'd look at something and he'd pull one thing out of a huge amount of information, which is a great skill, and then that would be the thing that we'd focus on. And you know, more often than not, that was either bang on the money or so close to being bang on the money that it'd give us the next lead. Um, so he listens to everyone. In an environment like that, when everything moves very fast, there's lots of moving parts, everybody's kind of used to leading in their own right. What you sometimes need is someone who will make a decision and have the uh, authority and the leadership skills that we follow it. And that was what Peter was. Good evening, Dan. Are you sitting comfortably? I very much doubt you are. Then I'll begin. I'm guessing it was about the early 90s. I was training for a law enforcement agency to be an undercover officer and Pete was on the course and it was obvious that he had um, a far better tradecraft and mental acuity than um, a lot of people had. It was a tough course for a few weeks uh, with Manchester Police and well, following that I, I managed to get through 10 years in that, in that line of work and I know Pete did a long time in that line of work. And anyone who does that has got total utter respect because it's a difficult early. When you come out of doing full-time undercover work, it's a very isolated place. And the only people that know what you've been through are the people who've done it. And it's difficult to talk to anyone else because nobody knows what you're talking about. So all you have is a great deal of respect and for the mental capacity you have to survive and the endurance and that bodes well for whatever I think he is trying to do now. We're in a leafy, well-heeled, rather expensive suburb of South London. Peter has gone back with editor Mark Sandell to the house where for two years in the 90s he was forced to live while in the witness protection programme. There was a very real threat against my life. A bunch of criminals that I'd gone undercover to operate against, had all been arrested, 
They'd been caught in possession of a huge amount of drugs worth millions and millions of pounds. And when they found themselves in the dock, they wondered why I wasn't standing next to them. And of course, they pretty quickly realised that I must have been an undercover cop. So they worked on the theory that if they could kill me, they would kill the evidence, and they weren't wrong, uh, and potentially they could walk free. What kind of evidence did you have? I'd worked undercover with, against them. I'd negotiated with them. We'd arrived at a business plan. They delivered the drugs to me, which I had weighed, tested, resealed, which took me many hours. Uh, and essentially, they were caught red-handed. So, we're crossing over the road now. What, what happens? You get called to... Who, who, who's the one that tells you that you need to go into witness protection? Well, the, this operation was, was very complex and it involved the FBI, it involved the police in Ireland, it involved customs and excise, lots of different agencies and there have been lots of infighting about it and, and, and arguments at a very high level and the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police had asked for a report to be put together detailing everything that had occurred. Well, that report was written, but unfortunately, and for some unknown reason, it's still a mystery to me this day, my real name was put in that report. Not my number, which was allocated to me by the undercover unit at Scotland Yard, and which is what should have gone in the report, but no, actually my real name. And it appeared repeatedly in this report which then was mysteriously taken away from police premises, mysteriously was in the back of an unmarked police car, which the officer driving that then went shopping, and lo and behold, guess what happened? That car got broken into, that report with my name emblazoned all over it got stolen, and that's when the pre-existing threat to kill me was then potentially accompanied by the ability to find out who I actually was as opposed to the name I used during the undercover operation. So the threat we already knew about and largely wasn't a problem then took on a completely new identity as all of a sudden we were thinking was that report stolen to order? Do they know exactly who I am now? Can they piece everything together, find me and put a bullet in the back of my head? So at what stage does someone say to you, Peter, you're going to have to go and live somewhere else? I was driving home from work one night. I got a phone call from Scotland Yard and it simply said, don't go home. Move into a hotel, use one of the false identities that I always used to have because I was working undercover and come to Scotland Yard the following morning. We'll tell you what it's all about. I was told to be there at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, of course, I didn't get there at nine o'clock. I got there at half past seven. And a mate of mine said, you know what all this is about? And frankly, at that stage, I didn't. He pulled me aside, showed me a copy of the report that had been stolen, locked me in a room, said, read that, keep it, because you're going to need that. By the end of play that day, it had been decided by the powers that be that the risk to me was so great that I had to abandon my home, abandon my identity, move into a hotel temporarily, whilst they found a place for me to live. In other words, I was going into the witness protection programme. I had a choice of about four or five properties to 
go and hurriedly view with my girlfriend and choose one in which to live. This one here we chose. It's a row of very nice sort of mock Georgian terraced houses with small front gardens and small gardens at the rear. However, it's a cul-de-sac. Now, bearing in mind that I was terrified I was going to get assassinated at any given time, a cul-de-sac suited me very well because I could see the traffic coming in, the traffic coming out, out, and it would be very, very difficult for somebody to loiter with a view to trying to pounce on me and shoot me. So for a number of reasons, this really worked. It was the most secure of all that we saw. Which, which one is yours? I mean, don't give me the number, but which, which, one, which colour door is it? It's the white door over there. And inside, comfortable? Well, when we viewed it, it was an absolute shit tip, to be perfectly honest with you. It was unfit for human habitation. So we had to very hurriedly get a set of builders and decorators in to knock it into shape. And within a week or 10 days, they had it all ship shape and ready for us to move in. You had a different name? Yes, different name, different address. My Peter Blexley just ceased to exist. Bank accounts were shut down. My previous flat where I'd lived, that was taken over by the cops. All trace of me disappeared, essentially. Do you see any parallels between what you went through for those couple of years and a criminal fugitive who is on the run, always having to look over their shoulder, always worried about, is this the day I'm going to be found out? Do you see any parallels? I know you were on the right side of the law, but do you see any parallels? Undoubtedly. I didn't want to be found in the same way that a fugitive doesn't want to be found. A fugitive doesn't want to be found because they don't want to be captured. I didn't want to be found because I didn't want to be assassinated. Oh, the parallels just run through this almost endlessly. On one night, there's a pub not far down the road. And I went in there and I was thinking, a bit of sanctuary, have a couple of pints, read the paper. Believe it or not, two detectives who I knew and knew well because I'd worked with them some years previously came in the pub. Now, any detective worth his salt will know that you never approach a fellow detective if they're in a bar, a restaurant or club or anything like that. You always wait for them to approach you because they could be working undercover. They could be on a surveillance operation. So they might be your best mate in the detective world, but you see them in a pub where you haven't pre-arranged to meet them, you do not approach them. These two numpties bowled straight up to me and said, hello, Blex, how are you? What are you doing round here? You're not from these parts. And I'm like, thank you very much. What did you do? I just said, <laughs> I better not say on here. No, I just said, yeah, I'm fine, thank you very much. Oh, I've finished my pint. Cheers, see you later. And in a very antisocial fashion, left them whilst cursing them under my breath. You made a reference earlier to the toll that this period of your life took on you. What, what, what would you say that toll was? There was one person in this neighbourhood who knew me very well, and he was the guy who ran the, the off-licence or the liquor store just up the road, because I drank too much. I was in a perpetual state of stress, fear, concern, call it what you will. And in order to try and combat that and get to a state in my head where I could actually be myself for a moment, I drank and I drank and I drank. And quite frankly, I turned into a monster. 
My girlfriend left me. She tried to take her own life in this very house. She got rushed off to hospital. I wasn't here at the time. I was out working, believe it or not, undercover in yet another role, yet another identity. I went to the hospital. It was fraught. It was horrible. It was by and large of my making because she'd come here to live with me. She'd had to tolerate the monster that I'd turned into and she knew the relationship wasn't going to last. That was breaking her heart. She decided to try and take her own life. Unfortunately, she was unsuccessful. She lived, and but we never saw each other again. But I do know that she re rebuilt her life and that assuages my guilt to a huge extent. And of course, I hope she lives happily ever after. And how do you feel now looking at that door? being back here after all these years? I'm not enjoying being here one little bit, to be perfectly honest with you. It's a bit like confronting my demons in, in some kind of way. This was the darkest period of my life, bar none. It led to my complete and utter breakdown of my mental health. It led to me being hospitalised on two occasions, you know, in lock-in psychiatric wards, becoming incredibly unwell. It signalled the unravelling and the end of my police career and it is filled with nothing other than very dark memories. I mean, I feel really glum standing here looking at this house. I'm not traumatised, but I just feel glum. And to be perfectly honest with you, all these years later, I am still riddled with guilt. And the guilt essentially is because a beautiful young lady took the decision, potentially at putting herself at risk, to stay with me and come and live with me here in the Witness Protection Programme. And that poor, wonderful young lady went through hell, courtesy of me. Because I'm not going to blame the cops for what they did and I'm not going to blame the bad guys for forcing me into this situation because at the end of the day what happened behind that closed door was directly down to me. Yes, I was falling apart, my mental health was disintegrating, my life was, was crumbling. Even so, I still feel a huge amount of guilt about what I put that girl through here and I still feel like complete shit because of that. And I guess... I'm probably never going to lose that feeling. And, um, yeah, yeah. I wish her every happiness in the future. My name is David Wilson, and I'm Emeritus Professor of Criminology at Birmingham City University and had a very applied background before going into academia because for 14 years I managed uh, prisons and in particular had to manage a great deal of uh, offenders who had committed serious crimes such as murder and serial murder. David, great to see you. I'm sure you're aware of my hunt for Kevin Powell. I am. And I'd really like your input, your insight into Kevin Powell, the person, and therefore 
Kevin Paul the Fugitive? Peter, I'll, I'll answer that question in a second, but first of all, let me say something before I do. I want to know what you're doing to protect yourself in the search. I mean, the alleged crimes that Paul has committed are so serious that you've got to be aware that that puts you at some risk. And I'm not implying that you're at risk from Paul, but you are at risk, it seems to me, from those people who might be associated with Paul, who think it's in their interest to do harm to you so as to carry favour with Paul. And there's no honour amongst thieves. And if they think that they can do something to harm you to get kudos from him, they will do it, Peter. And that worries me. And I want to know, I want to hear from you what you're doing to protect yourself and your family. Well, I'm, I'm operating within fairly narrow parameters here. I am not looking to find information or evidence about wider criminality that has gone on and may currently be going on in Liverpool. I'm not writing an expose on crooks and revealing for the first time what they've done. That's not what I'm after. I am solely focused on trying to find Kevin Park. It would be different if I was writing a book about the current state of gang crime in Liverpool. I would be much more concerned about my own safety. But I bet you're already getting emails. I bet because you're a public figure, you're quite easy to make contact with. I bet that you're getting a small but significant number of texts or emails which are actually threatening you. And I don't think it's a question of Kevin Paul himself, per se, that would do you harm. But I reckon because he was such a player in that organised criminal underworld, there will be some people who might imagine, put it no stronger than that, they might imagine that they can gain some kudos by doing harm to the person who's publicly stated he's setting out to track down Kevin Paul. So are you getting those kinds of emails and have they worried you to the extent that you're protecting yourself? You're being logical to protect yourself and your family. I'm deeply fond of David. I adore him and I respect him enormously. And... Yeah, I, I, I hear his concerns loud and clear. He's not alone in expressing those concerns. But at the end of the day, I've been in the public domain for many, many years. And touch wood, I'm still here. Nobody's put a gun to my head and pulled the trigger. Of course there's an element of danger about hunting for Kevin Parr. Because let's just look at the criminality that surrounded the crimes he's wanted for and that whole Merseyside gangster kind of fraternity. There is a litany of murders, some of them unsolved. And clearly there are people operating at the very, very highest level of serious and organised crime. It's not a case of being scared. It's a case of doing what I am best equipped to do. 
we, we must all believe in the rule of law and in a strong sense of justice. Peter's experiences during his 20-year career with the Met prepared him for danger. He's gone with Mark to West London to relive a major incident he was involved in as an officer. The next station is Earl's Court. This is a district line train to Ealing Broadway. It's 1985 and Peter is with the Met Police. A phone call from colleagues in Scotland leads Peter and his team to think there's a very good chance that a murderer called James Bagry, who has escaped from prison, may be in Earl's Court. Welcome to Earl's Court Station. For your safety and security, CCTV is in use throughout London Underground. This is Phil Beach Gardens, a sort of crescent of four or five storey former Georgian or Victorian houses which were divided into flats, bedsits, pretty low rent, low standard accommodation. Peter and another officer are on their way to Phil Beach Gardens. The following morning, me and my colleague book out our guns, come down here with a number of other colleagues with us, get through the front door and go up to the flat where we suspect that Bagri may be living. We don't give him the opportunity to open the door. We kick the door straight in. And, I, and, I, and I'm first through the door with my weapon drawn, shouts of police, and in the, in the flat we find two beds, two single beds, one of which is empty, and the other of which has got a rather surprised young-looking man. We get this young man out of bed and we question him and we ask him about his roommate, who's clearly not there. And this young man tells us, oh, yeah, 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 no, no, that's, that's my mate. He's a lovely guy. I've known him for months. I think he went out last night and, of course, he hasn't returned. That's quite a common thing. He's a good guy. No, sorry, can't help you. So we leave the guy in his room, apologise for the inconvenience, come downstairs and we're standing around and there is something in my head that tells me that somewhere along the line, and I couldn't quite remember where it had come from, but that Bagri was working as a builder. So I'm looking up and down this path where there's a endless rows of cars parked and I see a white van. It looks like your archetypical builder's van. Being the nosy, inquisitive detective that I am. I look through the back windows, it's dark, I can't see very much apart from what appears like rubbish. And of course, I put my hand on the back door handle. And to my surprise, it opens. I clamber in, well, half in, I kept my feet on the ground. But no sooner have I got in, than all of a sudden the head pops up from beneath the blanket. And I was so startled, I just went, good morning. Then the training kicked in and I went, I'm an armed police officer. My hand has gone inside my jacket because I'm trying to get my gun out of my shoulder holster. And as I'm doing that, almost instantaneously, Bakery grabs a double-barreled sawn-off shotgun, which he shoves right under my nose. The man inside the white Ford Transit van in Phil Beach Gardens is 33-year-old James Bagery, a convicted killer with a known love of firearms. 
Sentenced to life after shooting a man during a robbery in 1982, he escaped from jail near Edinburgh a year later and has been on the run ever since. Bagery hid in the van after police went to a flat at 99 Philbeach Gardens at 6.30 this morning. He produced a gun when they opened the van doors. No shots were fired, but the siege had begun. Now, I'm not going to hang around and play who's quickest on the draw here because clearly he's beaten me. So I literally legged it. I run down past the van. I go about three or four cars further down the road and I dive behind a car, get my gun out, point it at the van and start shouting at the absolute top of my voice. You are surrounded by armed police. He wasn't, it was only me with a gun because my colleague, who was a bit disinterested, had already gone for breakfast. Very helpful, thank you very much. So I am now in a pretty, pretty awful situation. There's just me that's got a gun. I've got what I now, of course, realise is Bagery, a convicted murderer with a double-barrelled sawn-off shotgun. I'm in a residential street. It's half past six in the morning or so, and of course the world is waking up and people are beginning to come out of their houses and go to work. I frankly am in a pretty bad place. Well, fortunately, I think he believed me in that he thought he was actually surrounded so he stayed put. A huge police operation then took place. Roads were closed off, hostage uh, negotiators were called, hundreds of police descended on here, as did the capital's media and all of that. It became the big standout story for the next couple of days. As dawn broke, police dogs joined the marksmen quietly surrounding the van, which had become Bakery's self-imposed trap. The negotiators knew that the only place their quarry was going was back to prison, but the talking went on. Bearing in mind this chap has been in a, a van and uh, during a cold night and has had no food, uh, I think um, in the nature of things uh, he won't want to carry on much longer. And presumably there are no plans to give him food or blankets? Well, he uh, hasn't requested any food at the moment, but, he, uh, but uh, my understanding is that he does have blankets. During those couple of days, almost two days, Bagri stayed in the van, negotiated with, uh, with the police negotiators who tried to talk him out. We want to end this peacefully. You can walk out of the van, and there'll be absolutely no problems. All we want to do is talk Eventually, they felt that he was going to take his own life. So in order to protect the public and to try and protect Bagri from himself, tear gas was fired through the rear windows of the van. And not long after that, a muffled bang was heard. Grappling hooks were attached to the back of the van, a Land Rover reversed and pulled the back doors off. And there was a grisly sight of Bakery with his brains blown out. Standing in the street now, does it feel like it was 30 years ago? No, it doesn't. It, it, it feels uncannily recent, to be perfectly honest with you. He was, at the time, the most notable fugitive that I had found. And there is, of course, another 
rather notable fugitive that I'm hoping to find in the not too distant future. Now, for the last 13 years, a specialist team have been tasked with hunting down some of the UK's most wanted men and women thought to be hiding out in Spain. Codenamed Captura, the operation has already been responsible for locating 85 wanted people, but today the team need your help to find some more. Joining me is Andy Cook-Welling from the National Crime Agency. Now, there are some other people here that you, you want our viewers to help uh, locate. Tell me about that person. Yeah, Kevin Powell is a particularly dangerous individual. Uh, he is wanted in connection with the murder of 16-year-old Liam Kelly in 2004, who was shot dead in Liverpool. He is six foot five with a broad build. He's got ginger hair, blue eyes, uh, uh, short hair. He's got a Liverpool accent and he's got a distinctive one-inch scar on the left-hand side of his head. People have contacted me via phone, text messages, email, my website, social media, and have reported a number of different sightings of whom they believe to be Kevin Powell. I've checked the timelines of these sightings and in fact, they could all possibly be correct because none of them contradict themselves in terms of timings. However, are they him? Are any of these people trying to waste my time? Or are they all well-intentioned members of the public who genuinely believe they've seen him? It's encouraging. Clearly the message is getting out there that I'm looking for him and people are responding. Peter's had people contacting him with sightings of Paul in Holland, Spain, Australia, and one very intriguing one, a lot closer to home. <sighs> that was astonishing. Kevin Powell has been visiting Liverpool within the last year. That is absolutely astonishing. And that man sounded entirely credible. Next time on Manhunt, Finding Kevin Powell, we talk about Kevin. You and I both know that offenders who go on the run, there's this incredible push and pull. The push is to go as far away as possible, to get out of the environment in which you are wanted, where you have committed your crimes, and therefore you want to go to northern Cyprus, you want to go to Spain, or you want to go to Australia. That's the push factor. But there's also an incredible pull factor. And certainly, I felt with Paul, his narcissism pulls him back to Merseyside. Produced by Lewis Borge Cardona, Manhunt, Finding Kevin Paul, is written and edited by Mark Sandell. Narrated by Sinetra Sarkar, the series is a six-foot-six and five-live production for BBC Sounds. An unidentified body in a remote Norwegian valley. Head down there. Who was she? And what was she doing there? I'm Marit Higraf. And I'm Neil McCarthy. And in Death in Ice Valley, we tried to find answers to a mystery that has remained unsolved for 48 years. There are somebody living who knows more about this case. Tracking down eyewitnesses and using new forensic technology. Now I'm cutting the truth. Telling a story set deep in the Cold War with strong hints of espionage. If you take the missile, I will shoot. But it left us with a lingering feeling that someone 
didn't want the truth to be known. Why all this secrecy? It was like a cover. What on earth happened that day? That's Death in Ice Valley from the BBC World Service and NRK. Just search for Death in Ice Valley on BBC Sounds. I think we'll break this case right now.